essay one of idle hours in a library by william henry hudson this librivox recording is in the public domain essay one london life in shakespeare's time part two turning from the houses themselves to the home life of the time we may notice that in the establishments of the ancient nobility the arrangements were still on a large and almost regal scale savouring yet in spite of the slow movements conspicuous throughout society of the feudalism which was now on the wane and the old customs which in an age of transition were gradually being left behind in the greater households a number of young gentlemen of good family usually the younger sons of knights and esquires continued to offer personal service as in former days beneath these were the retainers so called who not living in the house or being liable to any menial duty attended to their lord on occasions of public ceremony while in the third place there were the servants proper who formed actual portions of the establishment and on whom its various duties devolved these were headed by the steward under whose control was the common herd of serving men and women and pages with these must be reckoned the poor tutor passing rich on five marks a year who sat below the salt and as hall's satire shows had to endure all kinds of indignity and finally there was the jester the privileged personage of the household who could say and do things on which no one else would venture there is no slander in an allowed fool though he do nothing but rail says olivia in twelfth night while the melancholy jacques speaking of his desire to assume the motley dress protests i must have liberty withal as large a charter as the wind to blow on whom i please for so fools have thus the jester was able to find in his wit and position an excuse generally though not invariably sufficient to cover every freedom taken with master or guests but in shakespeare's time this ancient and long-famous appurtenance to the larger households was already passing out of existence a fact to which the dramatist himself makes reference in as you like it since the little wit that fools have was silenced the little foolery that wise men have makes the greater show but when we pass from these huge and ostentatious establishments to the dwellings of the middle and trading classes we find the transitional character of the period far more marked evidences of domestic development and improvement reveal themselves on every side the essential traits of medievalism were gradually disappearing and with the steady realization on the part of the commercial elements in the community of their increasing importance in the complex life of the time there went many significant changes indicating the slow collapse of the old regime and the consolidation of society upon its modern foundations nevertheless in the internal policy and arrangement of the elizabethan household there was still much that would strike a present-day observer as remarkable for the older spirit still made itself felt though ancient forms were passing away for instance the relations existing between the head of the house and those about him and dependent upon him if no longer what they were a hundred years before had not yet begun to assume their distinguishing modern characteristics the position of servant prentice or journeyman still partook of a certain suggestion of servitude which it has required many years of social evolution to wear partially away 
our nineteenth-century notion of contract based upon terms something like equal at least in theory of so much money paid in return for such and such services rendered had not yet established itself and while the understanding between employer and employed was gradually acquiring more and more of a commercial quality it had not by any means lost all its personal implications the prentices of the time for example were something more and something less than those occupying analogous positions in our own days they belonged to the establishment lived with their master ate at his table formed part of the family yet at the same time wore coats of blue the colour which everywhere symbolised servitude and even constituted as we know from the city madam and other plays the livery of bridewell they not only were their master's assistants in the work of the shop they furnished him also a kind of bodyguard or retinue for on occasions when he had to make excursions after dark they went with him bearing torches or lanterns to light the way and stout clubs for use in case of sudden assault but the personal character of such relationships is perhaps most fully shown in the fact that masters and mistresses dealt out corporal punishment to their servants a universal practice which as chamberlain tells us in his survey was expressly sanctioned by law in haywood's english traveller young geraldine accounts for the circumstance that bess mrs winscott's maid tells slanderous stories about her by the supposition that perhaps her mistress hath stirred her anger by some word or blow which she would thus revenge in the establishments of the gentry the porter's lodge was the recognized place for the corporal punishment of servants male and female a fact to which many references will be found in the contemporary drama as for instance in shirley's grateful servant and triumph of peace and massinger's duke of milan and the city of madam indeed the whole domestic economy of the time still exhibited much of the semi-patriarchal character of former centuries when those in authority not only extracted due service from the men and maidens beneath them but held it also a part of their paternal responsibility to educate and chastise as for the children they too were far differently situated from the boys and girls of the present day there was as yet no talk of the rights of childhood and household law was rigid and severe at school the rudiments of knowledge were pounded into young brains by sheer force of arms and when the children went from the schoolhouse to the home they merely exchanged one form of despotism for another in every well-ordered family the young people habitually stood or knelt in the presence of their elders not venturing to sit down without express permission while correction by blows continued to be their lot so long as they remained under the parental roof and control even the children of the wealthiest and noblest families in the land were subjected to the same kind of treatment and we know that in their early years queen elizabeth and lady jane grey had been pinched and cuffed and smacked like their less famous sisters all this has been changed now and we have grown in some respects wiser in others simply more sentimental 
yet with whatever feelings we may look back at the harshness of the past let us at all events have the candour to acknowledge that the discipline which produced men like sidney and raleigh and spencer and women like the two just referred to cannot be pronounced altogether a failure and now a word or two about some of the everyday habits of the time among the middle classes as a whole the ancient doctrine of early to bed and early to rise upon which charles lamb threw such well-merited ridicule was currently accepted and this almost of necessity artificial lights were as yet in little use and being thus more dependent upon the natural alternations of day and night the good folks under the virgin queen inevitably kept better hours than do the londoners of the present time in decker's shoemaker's holiday the master shoemaker is depicted roundly rating his wife and maids for their laziness in not having breakfast ready and his anger seems at least a trifle excessive to the modern cockney since it subsequently turns out that it is not yet seven o'clock in reading the old comedies we are again and again struck by the complimentary facts that the activities of life were well advanced while the day was still young and that few scenes of a social character are laid in the evening time as regards eating important as the subject doubtless is we need not say much comparing the elizabethan age with the immediate past we may safely assert that men were more temperate now than they had been that they fed less grossly and spent less time at table but the abstemiousness was after all only relative it was still from our point of view a period of gluttony the early breakfast of meat and ale the morning luncheon or biver the twelve o'clock dinner with its exceedingly substantial fare and finally in the evening what dom armando in love's labours lost described as the nourishment which is called supper all these made up a series of gastronomic undertakings at which we can look back only with mingled amazement and disgust the staple articles of diet were the various kinds of meat which were partaken of in immense quantities with but little bread and only a limited accompaniment of vegetables but almost as important as the meats was the pudding for which the english had acquired so great a reputation that a contemporary foreigner fairly goes into a transport of enthusiasm about it the worst feature of all was the enormous consumption of intoxicating liquors tea coffee and cocoa those delightful cups that cheer but not inebriate for which we moderns can hardly be too thankful were as yet unknown in england and in their absence every meal was washed down with mighty draughts of ale and sack testimony to the drunkenness of the english at this time is appalling whether we turn to the plays themselves or to the writings of professed moralists such as camden's elizabeth reeve's god's plea for nineveh tryon's way to health decker's seven deadly sins withers abuses stripped and whipped and thomas young's england's bane which may be mentioned as specimens of a voluminous output of similar character no wonder that as iago and hamlet remind us the english people had become a byword for inebriety among the nations of the continent it must however be added as one favourable sign of the times that table manners were on the whole distinctly improving 
bad as they still were in many important particulars a change for the better was quite perceptible for instance people thought it incumbent on them now to wash before and after dinner a ceremony all the more needful as fingers were still commonly used where we use forks the laudable use of which as johnston has it came in towards the close of shakespeare's life and generally a certain amount of delicacy in what ouida has pronounced the essentially disgusting operation of eating was for the first time beginning to be looked for at any rate amongst those in the higher ranks of society hardly less important in social economy than eating is dress which in turn demands a share of our attention unfortunately however it is impossible in the small space here at our disposal to give any adequate idea of the extent variety and extravagance of the fashions prevalent during the period with which we are now dealing and which form a curious offset to the crudities we have noticed in household furniture and appliances harrison in his description of england declares that the taste for change and novelty had simply run wild and he and the outspoken stubbs are never weary of declaring that while other nations have their own special extravagances the english gather up and adopt the follies of all the rest of europe here is a passage from another contemporary writer thomas becken on the same subject i think no realm in the world no not among the turks and saracens doth so much in the variety of their apparel as the englishmen do at this present their coat must be made after the italian fashion their cloak after the use of the spaniards their gown after the manner of the turks their cap must be of the french fashion and at the last their dagger must be scottish with a venetian tassel of silk to whom may the englishman be compared worthily but to aesop's crow for as the crow decked himself with feathers of all kinds of birds even so doth the vain englishman he is an englishman but he is also an italian a spaniard a turk a frenchman a scotch a venetian and at last what not this is only a sample passages of similar import might be multiplied almost without number the fashions of the day were indeed absurd and extravagant to the last degree richness and picturesqueness were the two things aimed at alike in male and in female costume and in both cases the colours were as brilliant as the stuffs were costly the following speech of sir glorious tiptoe in johnson's new inn will give some idea of the run of masculine modes as seen by the vigorous old satirist i would put on the savoy chain about my neck the ruff and cuffs of flanders then the naples hat with the rome hat-band and the florentine agate the milan sword the cloak of genoa set with brabant buttons all my given pieces except my gloves the natives of madrid over against such a strange human specimen as is thus pictured in the imagination we may well set the women of the time as painted rouged highly scented bejewelled bewigged in french hoods starch cambric ruffs close-fitting jerkin and embroidered velvet gowns they look down upon us from the walls of many an elizabethan house and fill the busy scene in many a contemporary play women lily thought so far had the artifices of the toilette carried them were in reality the least part of themselves 
some of their freaks of fashion in particular drew down the ire alike of the playwright and of the more serious satirist one was the habit of painting the face so frequently referred to by shakespeare and others a second was the very common practice of wearing false hair treated at length along with nearly all similar extravagances of the period by the irrepressible stubbs every reader of shakespeare will recall the passage from bassanio's moralizings on outward shows in which this fashion is alluded to look on beauty and you shall see tis purchased by the weight which therein works a miracle in nature making them lightest that wear most of it so are those crisped snaky golden locks which make such wanton gambols with the wind upon supposed fairness often known to be the dowry of a second head the skull that bred them in the sepulchre and the parallel lines in the sixty-eighth sonnet in which the same point is touched on with striking similarity of phrasing the golden colour of the locks here specially emphasised it may be noted in passing was particularly popular on account of the reddish or as her flatterers would insist the golden hue of queen elizabeth's headgear finally a great deal was said about the altogether needless and reprehensible extravagance shown in certain small details of dress we may take the one item of foot covering as an example herein all the worst taste of the day was illustrated for shoes were made of the most expensive materials and were frequently covered with artificial flowers and other kinds of decoration thus massinger in the city of madame speaks of rich pantoffles in ostentation shown and roses worth a family while stubbs in his anatomy of abuses refers to shoes embroidered with gold and silver all over the foot yet upon the whole truth compels us to admit that if we are to trust contemporary evidence masculine fashions exceeded in wildness absurdity and monstrous barbarity those of the other sex women are bad but men are worse such is the distinct judgment of burton in his anatomy of melancholy and while we know from the speculative jacques that the city madam would sometimes bear the costs of princes on unworthy shoulders burton again is our authority for the statement that it was no uncommon thing for a man to put a thousand oxen into a suit of apparel and to wear a whole manor on his back i mentioned incidentally just now that class distinctions were severely marked out by differences in costume certainly sumptuary enactments promulgated about this time undertook to regulate down to the minutest details what should and should not be worn by the various classes of the community wealth and social standing being taken together as the basis on which to settle the problems of the toilette and personal adornment but within the limits allowed by such regulations and sometimes even irrespective of them for grandmotherly legislation here as always stood foredoomed to failure extravagance in fashion remained throughout one of the salient characteristics of the day the dress of the citizen and his wife if less elegant was equally showy and sometimes quite as expensive as that of the man of mode and the woman of the court and so it was through all grades of society from the highest to the lowest 
or as harrison put it in his vivid phrase from the courtier to the carter while we are still concerned with this item of dress it is amusing to notice that three hundred years ago people were to be found worrying their tailors and abusing their dressmakers as it is the custom to do at the present day we might quote illustrations from more than one comedy but let us once more fall back upon harrison how many times says this quaint old writer must a garment be sent back to him that made it what chafing what fretting what reproachful language doth the poor workman bear away for we must puff and blow and sweat till we drop that our clothes may stand well upon us as we read such a passage as this in its original strange old spelling which for the sake of uniformity we have not here reproduced we have surely to acknowledge though it goes much against the grain to do so that our manners have at bottom changed less than our orthography and now we must leave the ranks of the citizens and trading folks to deal for a moment or two with the more fashionable world the society of the time to employ the word which in modern parlance has assumed a highly specialized meaning was artificial to an absurd and almost inconceivable extent affectations indeed made up the larger part of life and yet beneath them all were a core of sound reality and a healthy element of spontaneity euphuism and italianisms had for the time being taken full possession of the whole aristocratic world yet euphuism and italianism were but external crazes and it was one mission of the age to show that men could be heroes in the foolishest dress and do great deeds with the most ridiculous of phrases upon their lips we could not here enter upon the task of analyzing the life and aims of the men and women who surrounded the queen at her court but as an offset to the steady-going middle classes of whom we have had much to say we must try to present if only in rapidly sketched outline the typical elizabethan gallant or fashionable young man about town as we find him portrayed for us in the plays and pamphlets of the time the accomplishments of the young man of this description were numerous and varied enough but they were all in keeping with the character of the perfect gentleman as set forth by castiglione in his cortegiano a work which had been translated by thomas hobie in fifteen sixty one and had forthwith become a kind of text-book or bible for the youthful fashionable world he could dance sing and play the viol de gamba fence ride and hunt write verses turn pretty compliments and take his part in the exchange of witty repartees stocking his memory with scraps of plays and stories lest his own mother's sense should fail him he could read the three languages of portia's summary of requirements in which falconbridge was lacking latin french and italian and was perfectly at home in what johnson calls the perfumed terms of the day he had some acquaintance with the poets in vogue played cards tennis and other fashionable games as a matter of course and last but not least was learned in all matters connected with the drama etiquette and dress these were not great qualifications but such a young man had little need of great qualifications since he had no great aims or ideals 
let us read over his every day's experiences and doings as we find them given in decker's gull's hornbook and other similar productions and this statement will call for no further commentary he was not an early riser for wearied with his overnight exertions he scarcely ever left his couch till the plebeian londoner was already thinking seriously about his midday meal then began the first important task of the day the toilette which was so elaborate a matter that lily in his midas speaks of its being almost a whole day's work to dress but when at length he stood erect in his scented doublet and gold-laced cloak with the roses in his shoes the bunch of toothpicks in his hat the watch hung about his neck and his earrings and his sword he was ready to partake of a breakfast of meat and ale with such appetite as he could muster for the occasion and then jumping on his horse with his page and horse-boy behind him to sally forth upon the regular adventures of the day curiously enough as it may well seem to us his first place of resort would very probably be st paul's cathedral one may well ask what object could possibly take him thither the answer lies in the fact that st paul's church in those days was the great place of rendezvous for all the gay and fashionable world thus says decker doth my middle isle show like the mediterranean sea in which as well the merchant hoists sails to purchase wealth honestly as the rover to light upon prize unjustly thus am i like a common mart where all the commodities both the good and the bad are to be sought and sold thus while devotion kneels at her prayers doth profanation walk under her nose in contempt of religion francis osborne writing as late as sixteen fifty eight says that it was a fashion of the times for the principal gentry lords commons and professions to meet in st paul's church by eleven and walk in the middle aisle till twelve and after dinner from three till six during which time some discourse of business others of news many bustling scenes in the old comedies are laid in this same middle aisle where amid bills posted as advertisements and crowds of servants looking out for places of sharpers like johnson's shift with a keen eye for prey and of loafers with nothing else to do all sorts of people strolled about with their hats on chatting laughing and discussing finance or politics or scandal till the whole place was alive with the hum of voices the rustle of raiment and the jingle of spurs i walked in st paul's to see the fashions remarks a character in one of middleton's plays there face threatened to advertise subtle's misdeeds and it is a matter of common history that falstaff picked bardolph up in the same spot it was thus its reputation as a place of general convenience and one in which to see and to be seen that gave st paul's the importance it undoubtedly possessed in the social life of the time st paul's walk and its varied interest would keep our young man occupied till the hour of dinner a meal of which he would probably partake in the bustle and excitement of the ordinary the ordinary the forerunner of the modern restaurant and table d'hote was then a novel institution and as such enjoyed immense popularity among the gilded youth 
three grades were commonly recognized the aristocratic ordinary for which to judge from a remark in middleton's trick to catch the old one about two shillings would be charged the twelve-penny ordinary frequented by tradesmen professional people and middle-class citizens and the threepenny to which flocked only the lowest and most questionable characters the first named of the three decker tells us was the great resort of all the court gallants there friends and acquaintances met ate gossiped laughed and not infrequently quarrelled together there braggarts like le feu in all's well that ends well made vent of their travel there the latest intelligence was circulated the latest scandal discussed the latest fads of fashion displayed in all their grotesqueness a good picture of the ordinary during the dinner hour will be found in the twelfth chapter of scott's fortunes of nigel but the genuine atmosphere is best caught in such a contemporary piece of writing as the gull's horn-book dinner over with its customary game of primero there were many ways in which our gallant could kill time there was the theatre with its more intellectual attractions the bull-ring and the cockpit the juggler's booth and the tennis-court the shops along cheapside and about st paul's among which the connoisseur in letters jewellery and kickshaws would find it easy enough to while away an afternoon but however he might pass the hours between dinner and supper he would probably appear in full time for the latter meal for which he might repair to the devil in fleet street or the mitre in cheap or the mermaid in bread street at which last-named place he might peradventure catch snatches of the conversation and laughter of a little group of men in one corner among whom we should recognize though he might not the burly form and surly face of rare old ben and the serene countenance and deep clear eyes of one who is more to all of us to-day than any other englishman who ever lived will shakespeare playwright and actor after that would not improbably follow the wildest episodes of the day which likely enough would end in deep carousal behind the flaming red doors of a tavern or at the gambling-table or even in more doubtful places of resort when in haywood's wise woman old chartley is looking for his son he bids his servants inquire about the taverns ordinaries bowl alleys tennis courts and gaming-houses for there i fear he will be found a direction which gives us a fair idea of the favourite haunts of the young men of the day gambling particularly in all its forms was one of the prevalent manias of the time and was often carried to such an extent that men would stake their very clothes and even their beards which might be used to stuff tennis-balls in green's to quoquay will be found a wonderful realistic scene of a quarrel following a dispute over the cards and dice and ending in a challenge for a duel then when the time came for him to reel homeward through the darkness with one sleepy page to light his way with a torch our gallant would be either uproariously cheerful or contentious or maudlin as his habit might be when in his cups he would bellow out loose songs upon the night air molest straggling by-passers 
come sometimes into conflict with the watch and once in a while when luck went against him might find himself lodged for the night in one of the prisons of the metropolis so the day would end and with it must close this part of our study but after all very inadequate justice can be done to such a theme in so brief and rapid a sketch we must go straight to the pages of decker green nash and peel if we would gain any adequate conception of the wilder aspects of elizabethan social life in such a paper as the present there is always danger lest the final impression left should be if not a false at any rate an inadequate one for the temptation is strong to seize only the picturesque traits and to pay such undue attention to grouping colour and general effect that we fail in preserving proper perspective and throw portions of our description into unnatural relief the risk of doing this is of course increased when as in our own case we take the point of view of the playwright and the popular writer and study the world of men and affairs mainly through the medium of their pages i trust none the less that we have not erred on the side of painting life in shakespeare's london in too bright or seductive colours yet to tone down our picture let us say a closing word about its darker aspects for these were many and they were very dark indeed as mr swinburne has pointed out one of the most difficult problems meeting the student of the elizabethan drama is that of reconciling the elements of lofty thought and gross passion of high idealism and coarse savagery which lie so close together which are indeed bound up inextricably in the very woof and texture of the plays of shakespeare's time the literature of the stage shows us with startling distinctness how in the world of the playwright there frequently went along with the deepest and most original thought a revolting ferocity of manners and along with a lofty sense of the beautiful and the pure a crude love of violence a revelling in blood a thirst for wanton outrage and low excitement all these diverse elements are separately prominent enough in modern letters as in modern civilization what seems so strange and puzzling in our great romantic drama is the way in which they constantly blend in the most intimate association now these extraordinary incongruities are not alone to be found in the world of the playwright they penetrated the life of elizabethan society to some phases of the coarse brutalism which formed one aspect of the complex spirit of the english renaissance incidental reference has more than once been made did space permit we might here add much corroborative testimony but as space does not permit i will content myself with accentuating very briefly the difference in temper between the age of elizabeth and our own as exemplified in one very crucial matter in the treatment of the large criminal class we who are privileged to live in an epoch of growing humanity may well be startled and shocked at many of the facts brought to light by even a casual inquiry in this direction executions be it remembered were almost invariably public and formed as we have seen not infrequent distractions in the monotonous round of life felons were hanged drawn and quartered 
pirates were hanged on the seashore at low water and capital punishment was in use for an enormous number of petty offences including even theft from the person above the value of one shilling the mere circumstance that we read of seventy-four persons being sentenced to death in one county in a single year itself speaks volumes indeed the severity of punishments was held something to boast of and men were still of the opinion of fortescue who in the reign of henry the sixth had proudly proclaimed that more men are hanged in england in one year than in france in seven because the english have better parts public malefactors of position were usually beheaded and their heads exposed in prominent places as on london bridge or temple bar on the tower of the former hentzner counted above thirty placed on iron spikes witches were burnt alive a horrible fate also reserved for women who killed their husbands which crime stood on the statute books not as murder but as petty treason heretics too were frequently burnt perjury was punished by the pillory and branding and rogues and vagabonds irrespective of age and sex were sent to the public stocks and whipping-post in london and within a mile i ween there are of jails and prisons full eighteen and sixty whipping-posts and stocks and cages writes taylor the water poet scolds were ducked and many minor offences were rewarded by burning the hand cropping the ears and similar mutilations finally felons refusing to plead were subjected to the pain fort et dur notwithstanding the proud and oft-repeated boast that torture has always been unknown to the english law surely it is needless for us to go farther than all this unless it is to add the striking fact that despite such brutal severity in punishment crimes and outrages of every description remained alarmingly common throughout the whole of the period with which we have been concerned enough has been said to throw in some of the heavier shadows necessary to complete the slight sketch we have been trying to furnish of the social life and everyday manners of shakespeare's time with this as our last word then we take leave of the spacious times of great elizabeth and become once more denizens of our own century and here it would be easy of course to fall into the cheap macaulay vein of moralizing to strike a contrast between present and past point out all the manifold and magnificent achievements of modern civilization and end with rhetorical rhapsodies over our wondrous wondrous age it would be easy i say to do this and i doubt not that it would be effective but when in my study of the literature of any bygone generation i make myself at home for a time among dead things and long-forgotten people i do not i must confess find myself in any mood for brass band celebrations the feeling left with me is a vaguer and sadder one for as i turn back into our own world i remember that this past was once verily and actually the present that these dead things these long-forgotten people were once intensely alive that the tragedy and the comedy of existence went on then as it goes on to-day and that in the breasts of men and women fashioned like ourselves beat human hearts after all very like our own 
hope and disappointment joy and despair the memory of yesterday the expectation of the morrow the hunger and thirst of the spirit the lust of the eye the pride of life the ancient sorrow of man all that goes to make up the sum total of our little earthly lot was their portion too as it will presently be the portion of the countless generations by which we in our turn shall be replaced and thus musing i think of the nameless young men and maidens of that dim far-off age who repeated the sweet old story of love as their fathers and mothers had done before them as their distant descendants do to-day while there was confusion in high places and storm and struggle about the land i think of the tears that were shed as gentle hearts broke in anguish of the brave deeds wrought of the tales of the faith of sturdy manhood and the trust of womanly devotion which will never be retold i think of the lives that ran their placid course of the children that came as years went by bringing hope with them and forward-looking thoughts of mothers weeping over empty cradles of tiny graves long since obliterated where many a bright promise found its earthly close i think of lives that were successful of lives that were failures of prophecies unfulfilled of splendid ambitions realized only to bring the inevitable disillusion of sordid aims accomplished of vile things said and done the whole dead world seems to take form and flesh in my imagination the men and women start from the pages of the book i have been reading a mad world my masters and a strange one but behold a world singularly almost grotesquely like our own and then my thought takes a sudden spin and this age of ours seems to slip some three centuries back into the past and becomes weird and phantasmal and unreal and i find myself peering across the misty years into this throbbing world of multitudinous enterprise and activity from the standpoint of an era when you and i will be long since forgotten when no one will know how we toiled and suffered and loved and died when no one will care where we lie at rest how curious to think of it all in this way and with what tempered enthusiasm and sobered judgments must we needs go back to take up again the burden of life knowing that the deep silent current of time is sweeping us slowly into the great darkness and that hereafter the tale will be told of us as it has been told generation after generation since the world began lo their glory endured but for a season and the fashion of it has passed away for ever end of essay one part two